We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. This weekend we have learned that there's no I in Labour, but there is one in Conservatives and there are two in Rishi. Uh, yes. <laughs> this is a Bloomberg analysis of social media posts uh, from the leaders uh, of the Conservative and Labour parties has found that Rishi Sunak was 25 times more likely to use I than his party name in his posts, while Keir Starmer was twice as likely to use Labour than refer to himself in the first person. Yeah, I mean, look, I get that because it's entirely driven by the polling, surely. I sort of wondered a bit about uh, how, you know, what the analysis uh, of their video performance is because that's mm. kind of the shareable thing uh, on social media, isn't it? Uh, and explainers that MPs and politicians seem to be most interested in. No, but look, uh, you get that because Rishi Sunak is basically more popular, it would seem, than his Conservative Party and that is the opposite it is true for Labour but I suppose you know the parties will also argue that it well the Labour Party would argue also that it it goes to its core values well indeed but I mean it it is a very clear indicator of political strategy at play here Mm. that while uh, Rishi Sunak might realise that his personal brand could be stronger than the Conservatives at this stage whereas Keir Starmer is perhaps less confident in his personal brand at this stage uh, at this point out from a general election interesting to compare though in the analysis from our colleagues too uh, that Rishi Sunak is also uh, referring to his own party less than previous leaders, mm. uh, including Boris Johnson and Theresa May as well. So it is a, a fascinating read, actually, to break down how people are using language on social media and, as I say, perhaps re- revelatory of a wider political strategy too. Well, I suppose that is if you're still using X, the old X, Twitter. X Twitter. And, yeah, or, you know, your social media platform of choice, which seems to change fairly frequently. Uh, look, if you did take half a day off on Friday, or if you were buried in the depths of a uh, a shop over the weekend trying to sort out the last Sorry, minute. we're going to say a glass of something. No, no, <laughs> of, of back to school, um, uh, hunting for back to school clothing. Perhaps you missed this, a raft of positive headlines about the economy when it comes to the UK. A revision of figures for 2021, which actually showed much stronger economic growth than previously thought. That means that the UK did recover to pre-pandemic levels at the end of 2021, something that we'd previously still thought was not the case. We're joining us now to discuss our senior economy reporter, Philip Aldrich, and Bloomberg opinion columnist Marcus Ashworth as well. Phil, to you first, can you just explain the mechanics of this revision to us? What happened and and who moved something on an Excel spreadsheet somewhere that we're all supposed to feel much better now? Yeah, so it's these... uh uh, um, Office for National Statistics revisions, and it's something that they they do. They have the they produce a blue book every year at about this time of year, and these uh, where they do a, a backward look at uh, data. So they're actually the data that's revised is up to the end of 2021. So it's really not particularly timely. Mm. But what it does is it um, they've had time now to get to get much more much richer de- data to uh, to analyze, and that showed that the um, there was there was considerably more stock building during the COVID period. So 2020 and 2021, 2021, there was a big revision. So it was mostly in 2021. Um, 
so there was lots of stock building. There was basically stronger services sector as well. And so you ended up with an economy at the end of 2021, which was 1.2% bigger than at the start of the pandemic and um, uh, which compared to, sorry, 0.6% bigger than the start of the pandemic, which compared to a previous estimate of 1.2% smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big revision. And that put us back in the sort of middle of the G7, where basically ex- almost ex- the recovery since then has basically been almost exactly the same as uh, for uh, both France and Italy. We're now better than Germany in terms of our in terms of our recovery. Um, and, and really this is, the, the sort of proviso here is that these, this is a, sort of detailed analysis which the European uh, countries haven't done yet. So only the US and the UK have used this, these, they call them SUTs, um, which is a particular type of uh, way of um, looking at the uh, GDP uh, data um, and uh, and the others, the European countries have yet to do that. Only the US and the UK have done it so far. Okay, but I mean, if if true and if other European um, countries, you know, have not gained as much as we have, it basically is a very, could be a very positive story for the UK in the sense that, you know, all that narrative around us being at the bottom of the G7 might not be quite so true. Mar- Marcus, let me bring you in on this, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Marcus Ashworth. I mean, this is something that, that you've talked about for some time. You've been much more positive about the UK's economic performance. Do you feel vindicated by this latest ONS update? Yes. Um, I think it's a fair way to put it. Um, I just think the commentary throughout the British media has been um, myopically uh, negative. And at the same time, it brings us really down to the question of, of, of how the structure of both uh, the Bank of England, the government, and indeed, therefore, the Office for Budget Responsibility, which everything keys off the ONS data, uh, how we are hamstringing ourselves to such a level um, you just had a look out the window, and this is the basic problem, I think, that both the Bank of England or indeed uh, perhaps you know the OBR have, is that they are constrained into, into it was set up by George Osborne, uh, in, in some senses, to, to, to regulate how uh, departmental uh, spending was could be controlled by the Treasury. But this has come around to sort of um, tie us all up in knots. Um, we don't know how many people left the country uh, during the whole Brexit process, how many people have come back, how many people are coming one day to the next. Uh, And therefore we are trying to extrapolate things like productivity, for instance, and indeed just the basic, relatively basic uh, gross domestic product numbers. Uh, And then we are trying to make and set budgets and and rank ourselves and all sorts of crazy things. Falls back to uh, a change in, in how we calculate GDP data in the UK. Uh, I believe it was sort of led by Europe and, and the Eurostat have yet to uh, apply it. We we now take in both the education and health sectors in a, in a manner which we previously haven't calculated. And quite a lot of this comes from, from these sectors, as clearly as, as, as Phil's mentioned, quite a lot of this is inventory build as well. So I don't take any great confidence in the future growth of UK GDP from this. And it's quite likely that other European nations will also possibly revise up their data when Eurostat gets around to it. Like we can't draw too many conclusions from that, but it wouldn't be a huge surprise. But it just frustrates me that, that, that we have this reliance on uh, data from the Office for National Statistics. So I'm sure doing the very best, they recently moved 
away from London down to, to Newport, or years ago, sorry now, um, whether or not that's impacted on their quality of their uh, data collection, I don't know, but it's possible. But we, we are relying on looking, steering, looking into the rear view mirror, and that rear view mirror vision is being changed. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not going to end well. Objects may may appear closer than they are in reality yeah. by the sounds of things. Uh, yeah, Philip Aldrich. I mean, given given the the parameters that Marcus has laid out there, does this actually matter? Is it sort of financial alchemy or economic alchemy, if you will, um, that we have this change and that we can all feel a bit better about ourselves? That perhaps the UK isn't as bad as we thought, but there are things that this actually matters for statistically. Um, there are some things which this doesn't matter for at all. Like, so if you if, if you think look, thinking about the fiscal position, um, what we have today, you can see the tax income and you can see the benefit outgo you know outgoing. It makes absolutely no difference. The fact that we are a bigger economy helps explain possibly why the tax receipts have been stronger than mm. was expected. There was lots of um, bleak OBR forecasts which were then revised up um, mm. because uh, things have turned out be- better than expected. So I guess that, you know, the fact that we have this this kind of pessimistic mindset that may fe- feed into people's behaviour and it may feed into uh, the OBL's forecasting mechanisms and the Bank of England's forecasting mechanisms because they see from the from the historic data the rate of growth that we can cope with. But actually, what's ter- what has emerged is that we were actually coping with a rate of growth which was a, a little bit better, certainly in 2021, and a little bit better in the in the revisions that had pre- predated that as well. But um, so that should make you feel a little more confident in the fact that we can we can grow a little bit faster. It does suggest that productivity has been better than was expected as well because mm. you know, we, we are a bigger economy. So that obviously shows that we, we grew per, per, uh, per hour worked a little faster. Marcus, do you think markets are going to celebrate this? Is this, you know, good for the UK stock market or good for the currency? <laughs> um no, not really, because I think you either have worked this out for yourself by, as I said, looking out the window and seeing, my, my word, aren't tax receipts doing well? Aren't things a little bit better, perhaps, uh, if you look at all the anecdotal data than, than perhaps the ONS stuff that we've got? And I think many people have learned to take the ONS data rightly with a, with a heavy pinch of salt. I wish, as I said, um, the OBR indeed, well, they're not allowed to, but in some sense, and, and the Bank of England likewise are constrained by this. I wish they could be a little bit more pragmatic about how they um, rely on on this data. But, you know, it doesn't really matter if you look across the fact that we're number three in the G7 rather than number seven doesn't really matter because growth across, uh, you know, taking out perhaps the States and and partly Canada is being really poor across uh, most of the developed countries. uh, And I don't think it's going to get better. So to Phil's point, I mean, yes, it's it makes some affects some things, but it won't affect perhaps the, the important things going forward. And, and that means that, you know, will this mean that the Bank of England changes its view on interest rates? Unlikely. Um, they may feel they've got a little bit more confidence that they're not going to risk the economy again to recession by hiking one more time. But I, I think that's marginal. And I'm reaching here just to try and extrapolate something. As far as the government's concerned and spending plans, you know, no, we know what, you know, all they care about is money in and then money out. So, and how much they have to borrow off the back of it. So I don't think that affects it. Does it mean our growth is uh, going to be better in the next year or two? No, but it, it may, I hope, give a level of confidence, which, which may work its magical effects in, in unknown ways. 
Um, well, you talk about sort of money in and money out. Um, there are some reports around today, Phil, um, that we could see a date set by the Chancellor for the next budget. So, you know, thinking a little bit forwards, looking forwards a little bit about what we can expect then in the next few months. I mean, the government still faces, you know, enormous difficulties in trying to steer the economy over the weekend. Hunt was talking about, yes, we can halve inflation or inflation will be cut in half, 5%. He's sticking to that promise, which is obviously a key promise for Rishi Sunak. You know, as you, you know, we're at the start of the new school term, the new uh, the new term, as it were, for Parliament, which begins today, and PMQs on Wednesday, what are you thinking about economically for the next few weeks? So I imagine he's going to, if he's going to set an order statement date, it's going to be the back end of November, probably. Um, the, uh, so the, it's it's quite clear, obviously, the, they're going to delay an election for as long as possible to give the economy as long as possible to recover. Um, so you would not expect this to be the giveaway moment. They're probably going to try and accrue as much, um, you know, build up their buffers as, as as large as possible. If there is an improvement in the economic data, and frankly, the ONS these these ONS revisions could lead to a revised estimates on the growth capacity of the UK, which mm-hmm. would which would have beneficial impacts for Hunt and for our you know. Um, for our deficits, etc. So uh, if there is headroom, you would expect him to bank it. And then in the budget in March, you know, he they'd, they'd probably do this this tax cut that they've been longing to do. Um, but there'll probably be little bits and pieces around uh, business tax relief reform and they want to extend this, uh, the um, uh, full expensing for um, corporation uh, tax uh, for to encourage investment in, in the UK. If they can find a way to do that, they would probably do something like that. Marcus, I wonder when politicians start knocking on your door, as they're bound to do quite soon, to talk to you ahead of the next election, what what are the economic issues that you'll be wanting to, to harangue them about as they uh, wait in the rain on your doorstep? <laughs> I should, it would be a first, I can assure you. Um, I, I think there's it, there's just a question of, of trying to get um, any form of growth. The word growth was, you know, obviously the feature part of the uh, rather unpleasant experience we had with uh, with this trust um but it hasn't gone away as uh, as a key um dynamic for clearly what the labor party's agenda is going to be is is to try and move away from you know they mentioned wealth taxes over the weekend as well a very fundamental thing that they're trying to steer away from taxing the economy more than it already is at the at sort of the largest being post-war uh, to try and get growth um and i think that's whether it be by a big property boom, building boom, or, or, or whatever things we'll, we'll find out through the conference uh, season, uh, because we're going to start seeing uh, not just the Conservative you know, future plans, if, if there are any, but you know, Labour clearly setting out uh, more, much more of a very so far very thin offering as far as what they would do policy-wise. So you know, in, in, in that sense, um, this is you know a, a welcome change um but it doesn't take away from the fundamental problem that there is lack of growth in the uk economy and if you look at the forward forecast to, to out from you know several years it, it it's really bleak you know reading it, it doesn't show uh, a sense of, of us getting over this inflation shock and then getting back to a much more normal lowish inflation and and, and growing economy that we would want to see um so i think that that's that is going to be, you know, how we can actually get a growth agenda, um, I think will be by far the most important uh, element I'll be looking to, to mention anyway.
Okay, politicians, watch out. If you're knocking on Marcus Ashworth's door, there could be some tough questions to be asked to you. Uh, for now, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Marcus Ashworth, uh, thank you very much. Um, fellow, wanted to ask you about something else as well. One of the issues in terms of spending that could be landing on the Chancellor's door is the problem of fixing the concrete issue that's emerged in schools. The Chancellor says he's going to spend whatever it takes to fix the problem. I mean, is there is there any scope in the public finances for for being able to deal with this if it turns out to be a massive bill. I think wasn't the analysis didn't they say they're going to spend whatever it takes from within the existing education budget mm. which that's l- the end of the sentence yeah, that is it's, most it's, important. It's the it's the there's no extra money um but we'll we'll do whatever it takes. Um yeah, I it's a it's it's a catastrophe, isn't it? And they're going to have to find some money for it because I mean um it, it, it's a it's a national moment of humiliation to have your schools falling down just as schools start so it's uh, it's ridiculous and they you can't imagine there being any political upside in in sticking to the fiscal uh, principles but i i mean i don't i also don't imagine this is going to be big really big amounts of money you know they they do they 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 squirrel away something like 10 billion pounds a year as a sort of contingency fund mm-hmm. and they could probably find I, I don't know if they've spent all that already on other contingencies but um uh so this this is it's it's in the numbers but it's unspent um and so they 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 probably can find the the necessary capital headroom to 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 to, to uh, set aside some some of this and it isn't it won't be a permanent thing so it'll only last for a year or two or whatever and then this it, then it will drop out of the capital spend so and they're looking at five year ahead budgets uh, as that's when their targets bite so um, they they can. I'm sure they'll f- find the money t- to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And the whether or not we actually get the full list published of the hundred or so schools that the government um, has they're talked they about. W- they're saying they will. They're yeah, saying that they will currently. Um, but whether any other public buildings are affected just beyond schools, I think, yes, is hugely yeah. I- important. If it escalates, yeah, then it gets into sort of much bigger cost territory potentially if it's public buildings yeah Yeah, absolutely and that it would also be the costs around sort of moving schools perhaps out of their current buildings and paying for additional things like busing or or being Mm. able to get those children to another school let's say if they have to close part of parts of buildings um yeah i think uh, a very important topic then to think about when it comes uh to uh the yeah, the political situation right now. The other thing, though, um, let's also pivot. Cause I want a word on, on Labour. We should not forget that Keir Starmer, uh, in, over the weekend, repeating the pledge not to raise taxes. Uh, can Labour really do that if, it, if, uh, if they want to actually spend more money on their own priorities, let's say, were they to become the next government? So they've penciled in. So they say, I'm not going to raise any more taxes beyond the ones I've already said I'm going to do. And there, there are a few... I think uh, there's uh, there's VAT on on private school fees. There's a non-dom tax, um, a couple of others. So that I think you can add it up, and they've got about six to seven billion more um, uh, that they're that they're hoping to get hold of. Uh, so beyond that, they're not going to raise taxes anymore. Is what is what they say. And um, yeah, this is this is this 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 world uh, this. You know, the, the completely remade Labour Party is emerging, which is that it's very similar to the you know. Tony Blair and Gordon Brown first years, which was we will match the Tory spending plans. Mm. They're not going to commit to that on, in such a firm way because it could cause huge pitfalls for them if the Tories create un, unaffordable spending plans. Um, but uh, they clearly want they they set out 
their um, their plans on uh, sort of tax, and they're not going to do uncosted spending. And they've set out their fiscal envelope in, internally. So. I'm certain they will find clever ways of raising money, raising extra money. Um, but uh, if they're making a commitment not to raise taxes, um, I guess you have to take that at face value. Well, we'll have to ask you back to unpick the clever ways once we learn more about them. Philip Aldrick, our senior economy reporter, thank you very much. So now to Keir Starmer, who's expected to announce changes to his front bench today, selecting the team who will likely lead the party's campaign into the next general election. For more, we bring in our own James Walcott for the details. What do we know then so far about the changes? Well, there's already been a couple, uh, Caroline. Angela Rayner, who was tipped to be moving because last time uh, there was actually a big standoff between her and Keir Starmer and she ended up getting a 24-word job title. I won't ask you to say it out loud right now. Um <laughs> <laughs> but that's because, of course, she is an elected deputy to Keir Starmer. Correct. So she's not somebody that actually Starmer can, he can shuffle around. Also, he can shuffle around, but he can't sack her, yes. is the key thing. And so he tried to kind of demote her last time. And then so she ended up getting the deputy leader of the opposition and shadow first secretary of state, shadow minister of the cabinet office and shadow chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, which is... Uh, <laughs> which is the 24 <laughs> word But now she has just become the shadow minister for levelling up, which is a big, big, meaty place. Mm. where they want to try and challenge on Michael Gove and that's so that they can win back the Red Wall. So it's a key campaigning issue for someone that might suit her and gives her a lot of sort of heft. Now, that means that Lisa Nandy is currently looking for a job. So we don't know where she will end up in the cabinet, if she will stay. We do know the uh, Shadow Environment Minister, Jim McMahon, has stepped down. He's resigned. Already, this is a lot more wide-ranging than the recent Rishi Sunak reshuffle of Ben Wallace. So that's what we know so far. Okay, um, let's talk about the... The, the reasons why we should care about this, James, that we're still over a year out from the general election. We're not talking about ministers at portfolios, Zulch, the shadow cabinet. What's the important thing to look at in these announcements? Yeah, I mean, you could be forgiven for saying these are all people I don't know being replaced by people I don't know. Um, but the reason is these are the people you don't know who might very well be the next ministers of government. So first off, these are in many ways, Rish, um, Rishi Sunak was a lot more tied up in what he can do, given he has sitting government ministers. Keir Starmer is 20 points ahead in the polls and reportedly has a much tighter grip on the party in terms of selections, in terms of like his authority, in terms of how it's setting policy directions. So who he picks at this moment where we are finding it very difficult to get details out of Labour, especially on things like tax and spending policies, we look more for sort of the tea leaves. And you can tell a lot about where the party is going by who is getting picked for these kinds of jobs. And also the one word that I read again and again in the newspaper coverage, which is ruthless. How ruthless is Keir Starmer going to be? How much does it sort of show him as the master tactician getting ready for that big general election in terms of who he chooses and, uh, you know, who he casts aside? And it's impossible that it hasn't struck some of the Labour staffers at this point, that they are making a very clear comparison to Sunak, who again had Ben Wallace stepped down from defence, has done a very minor reshuffle and has had to trail that he's doing another bigger one after after party conference, after all this talk of a big reset, in many ways, this is Keir Starmer's chance to prove that he has the stamp of authority over his party, that he can move anyone else around. Speaking of Keir Starmer proving that he has the authority to lead, another big first day today. It is Sue Gray's first mm. official day. Uh, the famous former civil servant, which was a massive coup for Keir Starmer, getting her to become the new chief of staff. Yeah, she's obviously had to take those six months out, hasn't she, between jobs, you know, the civil servant... Uh, becoming a party official. What does Keir Starmer need to prove with this reshuffle? 
I think so. It's always a big balancing act with Keir Starmer because he has to balance the left wing of his party, the more centrist wing of his party, whilst also setting a, a general election direction. This isn't just about policy as much as we like to geek out about on the podcast. This is also about electability. This is the picking of the first 11 of the football team before the big match, effectively. So you can tell what kind of campaign he's going to be fighting. You can tell if what sort of talent he's promoting from younger ranks in the MPs. You can also tell who's not been performing. It's important to know who's get kicked out as well as who gets put in you know which departments aren't doing very well which where does he think the message is weak you know it's very unlikely that cooper will move because it's been so happy with how crime week went so badly for the conservatives over the summer but if a minister were to shift it's like well what's going wrong with that narrative that labor wants to try and recapture yeah absolutely very important to think about and of course this is the week where we get the first clash once more between rishi sunak and keir starmer at pmqs on wednesday sunak's just had a weekend with the king up at balmoral and then he'll be going to the G20 summit later this week. So, this, you know, we're, we're really ramping up now. I mean, it's, it's not August anymore, is it? It really is. It's, got, it's hit the ground running time. It's, it's, the one problem will be for Rishi Sunak is though, how he keeps control of the agenda, where Labour now is autumn have a number of ways to br- take back control. They have Prime Minister's questions and their own conference. Mm. It's not as easy for the PM to just deny them airtime as it would have been over the summer. Mm, the battle of the narratives is uh, heating up. James Wilcock, thanks very much for bringing us uh, up to date on that. And we'll bring you further details on that new Labour Party lineup uh, later in the week as well to discuss that future direction for the Labour Party all important as we move towards conference season as well and and we'll be getting those big uh, scene setting moments from the two main parties absolutely and Bloomberg UK Politics the podcast will be at the conferences for you of course Labour first in person (laughs) we'll be there for days Uh, yeah in person Labour first then the the toys after that but that's it from us for today at the start of this September if you like the programme don't forget to subscribe give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock, who's doing all of the jobs today. Our audio engineer was Marufal Hussein. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.